chapter 12 and a few things that kind of stand out if you were to give it maybe a, a, an outline. Uh, first is the word believe. Second is the word uh, beware. And then third is this two words, be generous. You know, and first we begin by just the word believe. We read here in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is it then that he is his son? And the common people heard him gladly. We begin, first of all, with this word, uh, believe. Um, this word right here, we want to direct towards our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, not just uh, who he is, but even what he's come to accomplish. We see in verse 34 of this chapter, it informs us that no one dared to question Christ anymore. They, they as they were opposing him, couldn't trip him up or trap him or stump him with their questions. As a matter of fact, he was so brilliant in his battle against them that he made them look bad. And so now what happens is Jesus turns the table on them, not just because he wants to win a debate, but because he wants to win their soul. He wants them to know the forgiveness and the freedom and the life that comes through faith in him. And you know, I just want to encourage you. I don't know if all of you here are in that spot. Do you really believe? Do you really have life? When I'm talking about placing your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you on the cross and rose again, who lives to make intercession, I'm not talking about you know, us believing in our mind intellectually. I'm talking about believing in your heart and not just half your heart, all your heart. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you believe in him? Do you know for sure that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? You see, that's where it all starts. And so, as they're, you know, done asking Jesus questions, he now asks them, he turns the table on them, but again, not just to win a debate, but to win their soul. You know, and that's why we're here as a church. We're not here just to give a message or do some type of monologue or to play church or, you know, to check off that moral, you know, whatever requirement that we feel that we are required to do on Sundays. No, we're here because we love you. We're here because we know that Jesus died for you and that as you give your life to him, as you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, that today everything can change and that by faith you can have life. You see, that's why Jesus now asks them this question about the son of David. You know, anyone, they all knew that the Messiah, the anointed one, would be the, the son of David. That means he would be a descendant of David. It was such a common title that is found 16 times in the New Testament. But the Christ, which again is another name for the Messiah, wasn't just the son of David. He was more than that. You know, when you read the Bible and you look to Jesus as the Christ, you realize he wasn't just the son of David, he was also the son of God. And Jesus wants them to kind of like think this through to believe that they might be saved. And so they, he questions them, Regarding the prophecy in the Old Testament that pointed to the identity of Jesus, that pointed to the identity of the Christ, it was a passage taken 
from Psalm 110 in verse 1. The Bible says, A psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so what Jesus is saying is that David calls him Lord. And so if David calls him Lord, how then is he his son? You know, and uh, by the way, it wasn't just David. David says it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You know, God is moving him to say these very words that under the inspiration of God, David calls him Lord. And so, you know, an interesting thing in a Jewish patriarchal system, the male would be the head of the family. He's the head of the tribe. He would never call his descendant Lord unless there was something significant, something super special is happening here. And that's exactly what we see with the Messiah. You see, Jesus was not just the descendant of David. He was the designer of David. He wasn't just the fruit of David. He was the root of David. And that's what Jesus wants them to see. You know, when you read the Bible, Isaiah 11.1 1 identifies Christ as the branch of David's lineage. But Isaiah 11.10 reveals him as also the root of David's lineage. How can he be both? You know, you read Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5. It says, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Revelation 22.16, it puts them both together. It says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And so what the Lord wants us to believe in is, is who is this Jesus? He's not, again, your typical teacher. He's not just a random rabbi. He's not a passing prophet. He's not a mere man. He's not just the son of David. He's the son of God. He's not just the fruit or branch or descendant of David. He's the root of David. And the Lord wants them to see this so they can be saved. You see, the one that died for you on that cross there in Calvary, he wasn't just a man. He wasn't an angel like some teach. No, it was God himself who bore your sins. And for us, as we read through these things, we've got to know this. You know, of course, this changes everything about the king as well as his kingdom. You know, because the Jews were thinking just for their own country. They were thinking simply national and when you find out it was more than the son of David, the son of God, it now moves from national to universal. It's no longer merely physical. Now it's, it's spiritual. It's not just temporal. It's eternal. You know, this kingdom that he came to establish, it wasn't just temporary because he's both the root and offspring of David. He's the son of David and he's also the son of God. And he will restore Israel, and he will rule from Jerusalem. But we must know that it travels infinitely farther than any human realm and into the spiritual realm. As a matter of fact, I think it's interesting and insignificant. It is significant to know that he wants to be the king of your life. The Bible talks about that. You know, the ruling over Israel is one thing, and ruling the world one day in the messianic kingdom is another. But how about him ruling in your life today? On everyone's heart, there's a throne. 
And the question is, who sits on that throne? Do you? Or maybe some loved one that, you know, you put before God. No, the one who sits on that throne, it must be Christ. And so we see it's more than what they had imagined. You know, this is much more than a king who would come and defeat the empire of the Romans. No, this is the king of kings who would come and defeat the empire of the devil. That's who Jesus is. You know, there's another prophecy in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. That the one who would one day be born in Bethlehem, everyone knew this would be the Messiah. That, that wasn't his origin. He's actually the eternal one. And so Jesus asked them about this. You know, why does David call him Lord? And he's talking to the scribes who are supposed to be the experts in the law. And the Bible says in Matthew 22, verse 46, that they had no answer. Why? Because they weren't open to the revelation of the scriptures. But for us, prayerfully today, we're open. You know, it's an interesting thing. It says right there that the common people heard him. You know, that's folks just like us, people who are open. You know, and you, and you hear these things about Jesus and, and you believe. You know, there's a great movie out right now. I'll give it a quick plug because I have stock in it. It's called um, <laughs> The Case for Christ. How many of you have seen that movie? Just out of curiosity. Okay, so the rest of you are backslidden, but this is what I... <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, I encourage you, go see the movie. It's about a man who was an atheist. He was a, 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 an award-winning writer for the Chicago Tribune, if I'm not mistaken, and you know, his wife became a Christian and she began to be a real great witness and the Lord started working on his heart. And so what he did was he set out an agenda to try to write a book to debunk Christianity. And so he looked at all the evidence. And as you watch the movie, you'll see all the evidence is overwhelming that we have faith that's founded on fact. It's so, so cool. But, you know, when you watch the movie, what you find at the end is that he believes. He becomes a Christian. Why? Because he's open. And that will happen to anyone who, when they approach the scriptures, they approach reason, they approach these things with an open heart, they will believe. And let me tell you something. When you believe, you will be saved. That's the promise of the Bible, the most famous verse in the whole scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we believe in Jesus. We believe that he's the son of David and the son of God. And we believe and we understand the reason that he came is to establish an everlasting kingdom. Not just here, you guys. It's a place in heaven. That's our final destination. That is our home. And so first word is believe. Can you guys say that with me? Believe. Okay, second word is beware. Can you say that? Beware. I'm going to ask you afterwards. We're reading tamales together, okay? <laughs> Look at verse 38. It says, And then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, 
the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. You know, it's so important that, that we believe, that we believe in Jesus and that we continue to believe in Jesus until the day that we die. But I'll tell you something else that we have to do until the day we die. We have to beware. Because the Lord here gives us a warning not to follow the self-righteous and hypocritical scribes and not to be like them. You know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, so guilty of so many hypocrisies. You know, they were all into, you know, I, I want respect, I want recognition, I want riches. Uh, they were so caught up in superficial religion. And there are a lot of pastors out there who want to be famous. So many that are merely religious. And they're caught up in all these things. In all reality, they're hirelings. They're in it for what they can, can get, not what they can give. And the Lord says, hey, you always have to beware of these things. You know, pride, the power, the desire to have preeminence, the desire to be in some certain position or to have certain possessions. And the Lord says right here, they would dress with these long white robes with long tassels so that everyone could see them at a distance and consider them to be, you know, someone important. And whenever they would go somewhere, they were so caught up in this ugly, nauseating pride that they were expecting others to refer to them with certain titles, rabbi, which means great one, or, or master. Some of them expected some to call them father. You know, Jesus said, let no one call you father. You only have one father. That's your heavenly father, right? And so they wanted to hear those greetings. You know, I want to encourage you guys to make sure that we don't ever come to that place, you know? You know, we're not going to arrive where we can say, let my guard down. I know for myself, I don't have it all together. The truth is that we're all susceptible to the sin of pride and the temptation to be caught up, lifted up in some position where you want others to acknowledge you. All I'm saying right here is Jesus warns us against this. He says to beware. You know, they wanted the best seats in the synagogues, and so they occupied the prominent bench in front when you would go to the synagogue service, they would have the ark of, uh, that contained the sacred scrolls, and they wanted to be up there in the front facing the congregation. They wanted to be seen. They wanted the best seats at the feast, the places of honor. Um, and you know, all of us here, it's, just a, it's, a, it's something that can happen to any of us. We have to be so careful. Even today, you know, to be honest with you, I have a hard time. I have gone to Christian events where... They have these green rooms where, you know, the guys that, you know, I don't know, for whatever reason, they eat separately from everyone else. Why? You know, shouldn't we all eat together? Isn't the ground level at the foot of the cross? Are we not all equal? Yes. But we can get caught up in pride and positions and possessions. Notice again there in verse 40 that they devoured widows' houses. And for a pretense, they made long prayers. You know, it was just a show to them. It wasn't real. Um, believe it or not, there were a few ways to devour widows' houses. It was a saying back then that spoke of 
these charlatans convincing the poor widows who were barely making it to give to them, you know, the, the money that they had in order to line their pockets with the accumulation of wealth. And there are many people out there guilty of such things. You know, you see these guys, and again, I can't judge everyone's heart, but I'll be honest with you, man. A lot of these guys on television, you know, dressed in these $3,000 suits, they've got million-dollar mansions, they're driving a Bentley, they're charging hundreds of thousands of dollars to speak. You know, run from them. He says, beware of them. Don't follow them. Don't be like them. Because they're going to be condemned, and so will everyone who follows after their ways. You know, others talk about how the devouring of widows' houses was done, you know, literally in the sense that the scribe was a lawyer. And so in those days, the lawyer would in one sense be the estate planner, and if the widow had no son to give her house to, these greedy-for-gain scribes would convince her to hand it over to the temple, and again, they would line their pockets with the commission. These were things that were literally happening. You know, may God guard our hearts from ever seeing the ministry as something that I can get in any way, accolades, power, position, possessions, money. And if ever you come to a place where, yeah, maybe the Lord says, hey, I want you to come on staff. You know, the Bible does say the labor is worthy of his wages. Make sure that you check your heart every day that you're not in it for the money. You're in it because you love God and you love the people, lest you fall into this snare where the scribes were searching for all these things. How unlike our Lord they were. You know, it's interesting to me how Jesus humbled himself to the extreme, you know. And we know the story. He's God sitting on the throne. He comes off his throne. He comes into planet Earth. You know, he becomes a baby the, you know, in a poor family. And he humbles himself to the point of, you know, crucifixion. They're spitting in his face. They're beating him. They're mocking him. They nail him to a cross. He's hanging there naked. I mean, for, for us seeing him, he humbled himself so unlike them. But notice again what we read there in verse 36. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You know, Jesus humbled himself so his father honored him. And he gave him that place, that position of honor. You see, that's the way it is for us in this kingdom. You know, when we look at this, we see that principle of Luke 14 and verse 11, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, you contrast that with the religious leaders of this day and what you find is that they were exalting themselves to those places of honor. And Jesus told them, you have your reward. It's very temporary. And this is what you have to look forward to. He says it right there. These will receive greater condemnation. You exalt yourself now, you're going to be humbled by God one day. But as you humble yourself now, God will exalt you. I know for sure, there's no doubt about it, that one day when we're home in heaven, the ones that are going to be given the greatest reward and the greatest responsibility and the greatest honor in heaven are names that we've never heard of. 
People that we've never seen, they're not famous in our eyes, but they're famous in God's eyes. And so in looking at this, we have to, we have to believe in who Jesus is and what he's come to build, which is the kingdom of God. And we have to beware lest we find ourselves falling into that trap that we're all so susceptible, the trap to pride, prestige, prominence, position, and power, and possessions. Right? Now, there's a story of a monk in the old days. He's a very holy man, loved the Lord, and he was sent to take up office as a leader in a monastery. But he looked and was so humble that when he arrived, he was sent to work in the kitchen as a scullion, which apparently as a servant assigned the most menial kitchen tasks. No one recognized him as a leader, but without a word of protest, no attempt to take his position, he went and he washed dishes and he emptied trashes and he did the most menial tasks that were required of him. And it was only when the bishop arrived a considerable time later that the mistake was discovered and the humble monk took up his true position of honor. You see, and that's exactly what will happen in the kingdom. There are those today that are there in the kitchen, so to speak, doing the most menial tasks. And as you do that unto your Lord, when he comes, he will honor you. You see, we have to beware. Jesus said these guys would receive the greater condemnation, the old King James says damnation, the, the most severe punishment. Number one, they knew better, right? I mean, these were scribes that were experts in the law. They've read it. They've heard it a million times. You know, we got to know this, that there are degrees of evil, and the greatest evil is the perversion of the greatest good. And when you find people in the church, people of God, who come against or make a widow stumble, you better not mess with the widows or the orphans. Greater condemnation, the Bible says in Luke 12, 47 through 48. You know, that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who knew not and did not commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. And so, you know, beware the way Jesus describes these scribes, lest we find ourselves condemned with them. And beware of mere religion. If you remember, prior to this, we read about the scribe who was so close to becoming a Christian, but he wasn't. He was religious. He had all the titles. He had the T-shirt, the bumper sticker, everything. But he did not know the Lord. You know, we have to make sure that we allow this to be a relationship, not for what we can get out of it, but for, for what we can give from our heart, which kind of leads us to the last uh, lesson here. Number one, believe. Number two, beware. And then number three, be generous. Be generous. 
And so we read here in verse 41, it says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. And then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrant. And so he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. And so, such a practical study today. I don't know how you feel, but I know for me, these things are all very, very applicable because I haven't arrived. I have a, a lot of growing to do in the way that I exercise my faith in Jesus Christ and in who He is and what He's really come to establish. You know, we find ourselves a lot of times getting caught in this world, the Bible says, ensnared with the uh, cares of this life. And we don't realize that Jesus didn't come just to make this world a better place, although you know, we want to try to do our part to make this world a better place, but this is not our home. Our heart is for the eternal. You know, I've shared with you guys many times that story. Of, let's just say you go to the hotel or the motel. You're spending a few days there. And imagine you're there in the room and you, you say to yourself, well, I don't like the carpet. And so you go and you pull it out and you go down and buy some new carpet. You're there, I don't like the furniture. And so you get rid of it, and, you know, you go and you spend thousands of dollars on new furniture. You know, and you start fixing up your whole hotel room. And it's like, dude, you're only going to be there for three days, you know. Why are you investing all your time, all your life in something that is only temporal? And that's the way it is sometimes. We forget he's the son of God, not just the son of David. He didn't come to establish a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And so we have to invest our life, our time, our resources, our talents, our treasure into those things that are eternal. We've got to believe in that. And then as we're, as we're believing, we have to beware because as we get involved in ministry, the same thing can happen in the church that happens in the world and people are jockeying for position and, you know, they want to become famous and, you know, they get caught up in stuff like that, you know, and the Lord says, beware of all that. That's the way the world is. You know, you love me. You love the people. You do as I call you to do. Beware of that pride. It's always there knocking on the door wanting to get in. And then the third thing as we're going through life and, you know, we all have a budget. We all have money that we spend. You know, you can tell more about a person by looking at their checkbook than anything else. You know, how do you spend your money? A lot of times people spend almost all their money on themselves. And here we learn this lesson from the poor widow. You know, if you've been coming to Calvary Chapel, uh, you guys know we, we don't talk a lot about money. You know, a lot of churches do. Again, I don't want to judge them per se, but man, they're always talking about giving and you know, taking up multiple offerings. You know, we're not like that. We believe where God guides, God provides. If it's God's will, it's God's bill. We're not going to try to manipulate people into giving. God will stir people up. God will be the provider 
for this church. But when we do come across it as we're teaching through the Bible, we will share it with you because I'll tell you what, if you get obedient in this area, let me tell you something, you will be blessed. You will be blessed when you understand the way that we are to be generous. You know, a lot of people believe that Jesus sat at the gate beautiful and from there he could watch people donate. You know, and it's interesting, God does watch. He does see. I'm reminded of that devout man, Cornelius. He was a Roman soldier who, the Bible says, he gave alms generously in Acts chapter 10 and verse 2. And so we read the message of God that was sent to him through an angel in Acts chapter 10 and verse 4. It says to Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. I mean, it's like as he was giving, it was like rising as incense, and God was looking at it as something that he would not forget. You know, God sees our contributions, our donations, they're right before him. And here's Jesus, he's watching this whole thing going on because he's got a lesson for us today. You know, in the court of the women, if you were to look at the temple of those days, there were 13 collection boxes, and they had uh, these trumpets. They were called boxes of trumpets because they were shaped in that way. And so each of those trumpets, they kind of had special purposes. Like if you were to give this one, it would be for grain, or that one for wood, that one for temple improvements, others for free will offerings. And so Jesus is there, and he saw many of the rich putting in much but then he witnessed a poor widow who came in and she threw in only two mites, uh, literally meaning a thin one. That's what it literally means in the, in the Greek language. Mark then equates it to Roman currency, calling it two quadrants, which were, if you were to try to equalize it, like for today, how much is that? Uh, it would be 164th of a day's wages. And so... You know, you do the math. Let's just say your uh, average uh, laborer getting $100 a day, then that would be about $1.50. And so that's about how much she put in there. And so Jesus sees this whole thing going on, and he calls his disciples over. That's what he says. Look at it. says in, in verse 41, Jesus sat opposite the treasury, saw the people put money into the treasury, Many were rich, put in much, and then this poor widow came. She threw in two mites, which makes a quadrants. And so he called his disciples to himself. And he calls them over and he says, man, you've got to see this widow. She is amazing. This poor widow here has given more to the treasury than everyone else put together. That's what she says literally in the in the Greek language, that's what Jesus says because the Lord explains they put in out of their abundance. They gave out of their surplus, but she has given everything she has to live on. You know, and, and what we learn, you guys, is that it's not the size per se, it's not the sum that God is impressed with, it's the sacrifice. And if we can learn this lesson, our life will change. It's not the portion that impresses God. It's the proportion. And this widow here, she gave everything. And you might wonder, well, then how is she going to live? 
I mean, if she gives everything to God, how's she going to make it? Well, more than likely, she probably had a sack of beans and rice at home and salsa and maybe some manteca and flour to make homemade tortillas, more than likely, you know. Again, though, we don't know for sure. You want to know why? Because in those days, the poor, uh, the widows, they were allowed to go and glean from the fields. And maybe she was thinking to herself, I'm just going to give it all to God because I know I can go out there and he'll provide for me. You know, sometimes I see these old ladies here collecting, uh, you know, recyclables, man, and it just, it just breaks my heart, but it blesses my heart at the same time to see them doing that. And so we'll come and we'll give them the recyclables that we have. But you see, this is how she's living. She's living, you know what, I'm going to give it all to God because he will provide for me. I'll never forget uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, I remember he was telling me a story about how they paid all their bills and after it was all done, there was $5 left over. How many of you have had that happen to you? <laughs> a lot of us here, right? And so, you know, the, this guy's talking to his wife and, you know, she pays all the bills and, and she said, well, what should we do with the $5? You know what he said? Give it to God. Give it to God. That's all we have left over. Remember that lesson of that poor widow who gave everything she had? Give it to God. And sure enough, God blessed them. See, do you not know that he will provide? But what do we do? We give God a tip. We give God the leftovers. We spend it all on ourselves. Next thing you know, what do we have left really to sacrifice? You know, this widow, she teaches us so much. You know, let me, let's go over a couple of passages real quick in 2 Corinthians 8 before we um, take another offering today. <laughs> Just one more, okay. Look, look what we read, you guys. I'm telling you this, you're going to be blessed, not, not us, man. I'll tell you what, I've been teaching for decades. I've been a pastor for a long time. Every time you teach a, a, a message on giving, it always goes down the next week. Always. Because you guys are rebels. I've learned that. <laughs> so this is not going to do us any good, but I'm telling you this. This will do you good. Okay? It's for you. 2 Corinthians 8. He says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, that abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. And a lot of times people say, well, I don't got a lot of money, so I can't get, give. And it's God testing you, saying that's the very time that you give sacrificially. That's what they were doing. He says, for I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. See, a lot of people, they give, you know, just, uh, uh, just, you know, kind of, this is all I can give. And the Lord says, no, well, if you want to really, really be blessed, then go, go farther, go beyond your ability. It says in verse 4, imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. I told you earlier, you can tell everything about a person by the way they spend their money. Have you given your life to Christ? If you have, then you have come to that place 
in your life where you realize that it is all His. And you give yourself to God. And then you find yourself giving to the Lord sacrificially and obediently. Look what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9. Notice what we read in verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. How many of you know this? You can't outgive God. One thing I know is that you give to God the top, off the top, the fruit of the first, uh, firstborn. I mean, you just give to him the best of the best. He will provide for you. That I know for sure. Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all my needs, right? But I'm telling you this, as you give to God, you're, gonna, you're just going to reap you know, spiritual benefits. You're going to reap rewards in heaven. But here's the thing, don't do it if you don't have it in your heart. You know, like, oh, man, i got to give. Pat Manny was talking about it, and uh, you know. And, and the Lord says, man, don't even give. You want to know why? Because you won't be rewarded for that. Keep it. Buy a cheeseburger, man. I mean, the, it's, he loves a cheerful giver. Lord, I can't believe that I can actually give to you. Now, that should be our attitude. Have you guys ever seen those videos on YouTube? Those guys are dancing as before they're giving? We should do that. Because <laughs> you're going to be so blessed when you give. Isn't the Bible say, Jesus said, is more blessed to give than to receive, right? Malachi 3, 8 through 10, it talks about how some people, they rob God because they don't give the tithes and they don't give their offerings. You know, a lot of people, you know, they'll ask me, hey, Manny, how does it work, you know, for us as a church? I mean, what are you supposed to give? And I tell people, I think that 10% is a good place to start. You know, and then they'll usually ask me, well, is it the net or the gross, you know? And <laughs> Come on, you know? Some people will write a check, and I don't know who gives in this church, you know. I don't look at that, thank God, but I remember, you know, 67.41. I mean, why don't you round up to the next dollar or something, you know? 10% is a good place to start. It's a good place to start. They're like training wheels. And then you learn to give to God sacrificially. You learn to give to God obediently. You learn to give not just the tithes, but also the offerings. And then you want to know what happens in your life. God opens the windows of heaven and he rains down blessings on you so much that you cannot hold it in. That's what the Bible says. You know, again, Philippians 4, verse 17, Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Again, one thing I've learned as a pastor is that God is the provider of this church. You know, we're not dependent on you. Thank God, you know. And he just has his ways of doing things that just blow my mind. And so it's not like we're trying, you know, to whatever, manipulate you in any such way so that we might benefit from it. God's not poor. This is his church. He will always provide. 
But I share these things with you so that you can learn to surrender that area of your life to him. So that you can learn to impress and bless Jesus Christ as he watches those donations going in. And what you'll find is that you will receive a great reward as you give it all to him. Because he doesn't just own 10%, huh? I mean, he owns, he owns it all, right? It all belongs to him. And so we have to have that understanding. And so we believe, right? You guys believe? Yeah, we've got to do that. We have to make sure we beware of the scribes and all that kind of ugly stuff. And may we be generous as we live life and asking him, Lord, how do we give? Show me, Lord, how to give sacrificially and how to give obediently. Because if you do, I, I tell you this, you know, one day you will be rewarded, you know. And we don't do it just for the reward, but we do it because we know it pleases him. Let me close one last story. I think I shared this with you guys before about the laborer who was about to retire. And so the owner gave him one last project to do, one last house to build for him. And so the owner instructed him to build the best house he could, you know, to use the best materials and to hire the best workers so that they might produce the best house they'd ever built. But the laborer was lazy. And even though the owner had taken care of him for many, many years, the laborer decided to cut corners and to use the cheapest material and just to kind of slap things together, no care for detail or excellence. You know, it, it looked okay kind of from a distance, but, you know, as he's building this house, not putting his heart into it, not working hard, not doing it as a labor of love or excellence, the laborer knew as he's building the house you know, that this, it's really just a house of cards, but I just want to get it done. And so the day finally came, and the laborer got the keys from the locksmith, and he offered them to the owner, and he said, here, your house is done. Uh, but the owner said, no. As a reward for your many years of service, I give you this house. <laughs> you have built it for yourself. You see, and that's exactly what's going on right now. You know, in one sense, uh, that's the way it is as we build by faith and faithfulness, humility, generosity, sacrifice, and obedience, we will be rewarded in eternity. So I really want to encourage you today, be generous in your giving. Make sure that you beware of mere religion, that you be generous unto the Lord Jesus Christ.